You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey nerds, welcome back to another episode of What the History. So this is Casey coming at you for a mini-sode. So last week we spoke about Ida B. Wells, who is probably one of the most badass women that I've had the pleasure of learning about. And what's funny is Sarah and I actually weren't even planning on doing Ida B. Wells as a topic just yet. And we decided, well, you know, we really don't know too much about her other than we know that she's a journalist and we wanted to make sure that we covered her journalism specifically. But going back and listening to the episode, we kind of both realized that we focused so much on her journalism. We didn't really focus too much on her activism in terms of women's suffrage. So interestingly enough, we ended up deciding to do a mini-sode on her because she played a huge role in the women's suffrage movement. And... If you know anything or you were on Google or Facebook or Instagram and you saw people posting all of these pictures and stories, uh, August 18th, 2020, the United States celebrated its centennial anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which is what granted women the right to vote. So today, as I record this episode, we actually can acknowledge Women's Equality Day, which I think is a great segue into our topic of understanding what did Ida B. Wells do for the women's suffrage movement because she contributed a lot. And while we did a really great job, I think last week of talking about her advocacy for civil rights and her huge impact on the anti-lynching campaign, we didn't really get to touch too much on what she did to help women gain the right to vote. So that's what I'm gonna focus on today. So last week we discussed how Ida B. Wells was essentially forced out of her home in Memphis after she published a scathing and brutal expose about the lynching of black men, which is why she moved north to Chicago. After she moved to Chicago, she began to shift her focus to the women's suffrage movement, though she was still an extremely vocal advocate for civil rights. She still did a lot of tours throughout the country, throughout uh, England to advocate for anti-lynching campaigns. But when she is in Chicago, she finds her new home in the second ward. And in the second ward, Wells starts to embrace the culture and views of the people around her, including the interest in politics among the women of the area. So in 1894, she got involved in the campaign of Lucy Flower, who was one of the first, or I think she actually was the first, Illinois women, woman to hold a statewide position. And in 1896, she was asked to canvass the entire state for William McKinley, who was running for president. She was one of the best voices to canvass for him because he had actually widely spoken out about anti-lynching campaigns as the governor of Ohio. And at the time, Ida actually had a six-month-old son, and she traveled with him throughout the state. So she's later quoted as saying, quote, I honestly believe that I am the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches, quote, which is super badass. And I know last week we discussed how she did admit to struggling with home life and work life and advocating for civil rights and for women everywhere. But on top of all of that, she also really advocated for herself as a mother. And actually, I was reading that she demanded that a nurse be present at every single place that she stopped on her tour. So that way she could make sure that there was someone to help provide for her, provide for the baby, which I think is just really powerful, too, because it spoke volumes about how much they valued her voice and her opinions and her ability to sort of bring people together to advocate for someone like McKinley. 
In addition to that, she was also a guest in Susan B. Anthony's home in New York, and she and the quote-unquote pioneer suffragist had actually been in communication specifically in regards to the role that African-American women could and should play in the women's suffrage movement. So Anthony was very concerned about including women of color in the fight in the name of expediency. So basically meaning that it was more important for white women to get the vote before then fighting to try to get the black woman's vote. So I know that kind of takes away some of the magic of Susan B. Anthony's apparent badassery because she was a very good example of what is a white feminist, even ones that we find today, unfortunately. But Ida has this really great retort. And she basically says that the strategy that the women are trying to enact would only confirm white women's segregationist views, which would eventually rear its ugly head again less than 10 years later. So um, the Black National American Women's Suffrage Association members were actually banned from the organization's national meeting in New Orleans in the early 1900s. On top of that, some of those leaders, the NAWSA leaders, were now assuring white Southerners that the only way to sustain white supremacy was to empower and enfranchise educated white women only. So basically, that means that they were openly, in some cases, campaigning for keeping white supremacy and essentially using the platform of the women's suffrage movement to continue white supremacy. So on top of being an active member in the NAWSA, she was also active in the founding of the National Association of Colored Women, which had over 100,000 members across the country. So I think we talked a little bit about that last week, but again, I just want to explain a little bit more because I really think that this is such a huge component of her story and her need to be remembered. So Ida believed that women's organizations were were the new power, the new molder of public sentiment to accomplish the reforms that the pulpit and the law have failed to do. And that's a direct quote. She was extremely passionate about the role that women could and should play at a time when the country was struggling to find its way, especially when it came to members of the Supreme Court, uh, legalities. She was a very big advocate for um, looking at harsher punishment for rape and for assault against women, you know, and it wasn't just necessarily about um, anti-lynching as it was just realizing that women were very often victims in situations and they really had very few abilities to speak out against those people who were harming them. So if we fast forward to 1913, the women's suffrage movement is starting to really gain significant momentum throughout the United States. So Ida and thousands of others have been working for decades at this point to establish more voting rights for women in whatever ways they can. So what's really cool, which I didn't know about, was the presidential and municipal suffrage bill in Illinois that actually ended up passing, which allowed the women of Illinois to vote for presidential electors, mayors, judges, aldermen, and other municipal offices. So that made Illinois the first state east of the Mississippi River to have a law like this. Now, it was a limited voting law. So basically, they couldn't vote in every single election, just the ones that I mentioned. But it also made the Illinois activists incredibly influential players in both the state and the national campaign for full suffrage. So what they had in Illinois, they wanted to expand further into other states, as well as expand who and what women could vote for and how they could participate politically. 
It was in anticipation of this bill that I just spoke about that Ida started to establish the first black suffrage organization in Chicago called the Alpha Suffrage Club in January of 1912. And in this work, she came to the realization that many African-American women didn't even have the education to actively participate in politics and the overall electoral process, which, of course, was no fault of their own. It was entirely the impact of years of enslavement and the generational struggles of sort of like catching up. So there were a lot of African-American women who had such crucial roles at home or as you know, as workers that they didn't really get the opportunities to understand how the political system worked and how they could really have an impact in things like workers' rights and what the president could actually do for the country. So this realization made her feel more inspired to reach out to the other clubs for women of color at the local, state, and even national levels because she wanted to help encourage more black women to get involved in politics and most importantly, get involved in politics that they felt comfortable and they understood. So it wasn't just about getting women involved with the vote, but also getting women comfortable enough to be aware of what their impact was and also understanding what candidates would actually help them out. On top of that, she also was encouraging of women who wanted to take a place in politics themselves. So it wasn't necessarily just on a voter level, but also in some type of legislative role. So it was in March of 1913 that Ida B. Wells and thousands of other women went to the first suffrage parade in Washington, D.C., which was an event that was organized by the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And this is probably one of the most inspiring, heartbreaking, badass stories I've heard of women's history. And there's a lot of me that as an educator is frustrated that even growing up, going to high school, going to college in my classes, these things weren't taught as commonplace. And sometimes I worry that there is this sense of like tokenism about Ida B. Wells. But I actually think in this story that I'm about to explain, she is truly the perfect example of advocating for intersectionality in women's rights and feminism in general. So like I said, in March of 1913, she and 60 other black suffragists arrived on the day of the march. They were expected to march with the delegation representing Illinois. So each state sent a group of women who were representing that state. So they were immediately advised upon arrival that it would be best if they marched in the back with the African-American section as they didn't want to upset the delegates who came from southern states. So again, we see this huge, huge impact that the white supremacist movement is having in the early 1900s. And again, we see this huge fear and concern that if you give every woman the right to vote, you would then be taking away power from the white men who were in charge. And so white men and therefore white women in southern states were really worried about this fear of the black vote and the black voice. So this is obviously a huge movement for the entire movement, as well as for black women's roles in the movement itself. So basically, if segregation was allowed in the march, it would pretty much be an incredibly significant fact that the women's movement would bolster white supremacy more so than black empowerment and specifically black women's empowerment, since the whole movement was about women's empowerment as well. There were also major concerns in the black community for how the vote, especially if it was just white women, would impact the legislation against black Americans. 
So upon hearing that she was expected to move to the back with the rest of the African-American suffragettes, Wells blatantly refused and stated, quote, either I go with you or not at all. I am not taking this stand because I personally wish for recognition. I am doing it for the future benefit for my whole race. So the Illinois delegates continued to refuse and Wells left. So for a little while, they assumed that she had listened to their directives and moved to march in the back of the line. But after the march began, Wells returned straight through the crowd, right into the march, and calmly took her place with the Illinois delegation, basically saying absolutely nothing, almost like everyone was like expecting her to do that. And she was front and center, so much so that two white suffragists, Virginia Brooks and Belle Squire, marched on either side of her to not only show their unity, but also to sort of essentially like protect her. So this event and her actions in doing so got significant coverage in the newspapers across the country, and it shed a lot of light on the reality for how African-Americans were expected to or even just allowed to participate in politics, according to white suffragists. The Chicago Broad Axe, which was a black paper, reported that Wells had, quote, proudly marched with the head ladies of the Illinois delegation, showing that no color line existed in the first national parade of the noble women who are in favor of equal suffrage. In general, black women were reported to have ignored the segregation order altogether and instead ended up marching with their respective delegations just in the way that Ida B. Wells had. So later that spring, several hundred members of the ASC lobbied for partial suffrage and against three discriminatory bills in Illinois. So thanks to the eventual passing of what I mentioned before, which was the presidential and municipal suffrage bill, the women's vote was even the determining factor in the election for the first black alderman, Oscar DePriest. Overall, Ida B. Wells had a significant role in advocating for the women's suffrage movement, especially in raising up women of color's voices in a time when it could have very easily silenced them altogether. But it's really important to also acknowledge that her job didn't end with the passing of the 19th Amendment in 1920. And in fact, Wells continued to fight for whatever kind of representation for women of color voters that they needed. And that fight, unfortunately, is not going to truly end even into the 1960s. And unfortunately, it's still something that we don't see ending today. There are a lot of instances of uh, voices of color that are suppressed in voting, in especially elections. I also think it's important that we recognize that Ida B. Wells had a huge impact on a lot of different facets of the United States and between her role as a journalist, her role as a writer, her role as an activist, um, as a suffragist. And I'm happy to see, you know, when I was doing research for this specific mini episode, I saw a lot more reporting done on her. And it was really heartening, but also it was very upsetting because I wondered if the country wasn't in the state of turmoil and uprising that it is right now, would there have been such a light shown upon her as the badass woman that she was? And I think that she is an individual who should absolutely be at the forefront of understanding the women's suffrage movement because a lot of times that sort of just gets swept into this whole like white suffragists were abolitionists before they were suffragists and that wasn't always the case. 
So one of the last really cool things that I found uh, about her that was in recent news was actually from an article from the Washington Post. So Ida B. Wells gets her due as a black suffragist who rejected movement's racism. And her image has actually been posted through Washington's Union Station that week, this past week. Um, And it's a huge photo mosaic of anti-lynching crusader and suffragist Ida B. Wells on the marble floor. And in the collage, essentially, in the mosaic, are the faces of other really significant women who were activists as well. So it includes like Sojourner Truth. Um, it includes Mary Eliza Church Terrell. Um, and I just think it's a really beautiful piece. If I'll, um, I'll post it online, too. If you have a chance to look at it, I definitely would. Um, but it not only shows that Ida B. Wells was like the sort of like figurehead for this but also it shows that like her fight was a compilation of the fights of literally hundreds and thousands of other women who were in the same situation that she was. So I think the best way to sum this up is with a quote that I found from Ida B. Wells's great-granddaughter. So her name is Michelle Duster, and she's actually uh, writing a book called Ida B. the Queen, Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. And in the article that she wrote for Time, she actually does this really beautiful and profound job of reflecting on her great-grandmother's work, but also the state of the country right now and how... Ida fought tirelessly for everything, but she also had people following her and there are still people today who are continuing the fight that she started such a long time ago. So the closing quote is this. During this centennial year of the 19th Amendment, it is important and exciting to acknowledge the determination and sacrifice of those who worked to pass it. But in the midst of the tributes and celebrations, we need to dismantle the false narrative of a whites-only suffrage movement and broaden the scope to be inclusive and reflect reality. The next generation is watching and will be inspired by the truth. And that, my dear nerds, is Ida B. Wells and her major, huge, awesome impact in the women's suffrage movement. So happy Women's Equality Day for all women. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to What the History Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WTHistoryPod. You're also welcome to email us at whatthehistorypodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.